In 2011, hip-hop artist Malfi ran the Boston music scene. Headlining shows at the Middle East and opening up for Mac Miller at City Hall, his live presence commanded energy, and his mixtape status gave kids all over the area a feeling of belonging and hope that one of their own could make it big. Behind the success was Cam Woodson, a bright-eyed kid from Boston on the road to becoming the next big music mogul. Eventually, the dream faded away, and Cam ended up at USC. Being out west brought him to a corporate position at DoorDash, but he still wanted something more. Ultimately, he realized his dream for financial freedom. In this episode of the Whole House Podcast, Cam highlights the nostalgic YouTube era of Boston rap, the exit from corporate America, and his new international life of travel and adventure. This is Cam Woodson's journey to retiring at 28. I like the tunes, man. Uh, or, or, or guys, it was great. I was jamming out. <laughs> Thank you. I was on mute jamming out. <laughs> oh, awesome. Oh, well, yeah. Glad to hear. Yeah, we'll definitely send you that playlist for sure. Sweet. So you just got to Puerto Rico like a few days ago, you said, or about a week ago? Um, yeah, I've been here for like five days. Five days. And so how long are you going to be there for? Uh, I'm thinking like one to two months. Oh, cool. Oh, nice. Awesome. What part of Puerto Rico are you in? Um, I'm in Aguadilla, which is over on like the northwest coast. And is it close to old San Juan? Uh, I, old San Juan's in San Juan, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm two hours west. So I'm on like oh, really? San, San Juan's, I guess, sort of central east. And I'm like on the west tip, which is where the most of the surfing is. Oh, that's awesome! And where were you previously? Uh, so I was in from November to mid February. I was in Barbados. That's awesome. And then I was in South Florida for a few weeks because Barbados went into lockdown, right. and uh, now I'm here. Awesome. What when you when you're picking out a new place to go? Like what what goes into that? Like is it is it mostly based around like the surfing or the culture or what, what do you, what are you thinking when you're looking for a new place to go? Possibly cost too. Definitely cost. Uh, (laughs) It depends. So I feel like it evolves. It kind of just depends on what's happening in my life at the, at that moment and what I'm optimizing for at that moment. Um, When I first started traveling four years ago, there were, I was trying to travel cheaply, but there are also certain places that I really wanted to go to. Like I really wanted to go to Australia and to India and to a few specific places. Now I've checked off a lot more of core places that I've wanted to go to. And so I've started traveling slower where when I was first traveling, I was doing six weeks in any given place. Now I'm doing like three to six months. Mm. Um, And I really look for like Island surf spots or like, just beach surf spots, warm weather. Um, pre pandemic, I was planning to spend nine months out of the year in Bali and then travel for about three months. But then, you know, pandemic happened. And now I have a girlfriend who's working on the U S time zone. So I'm trying to find different surf spots, uh, near the U S did you surf when you were in the Boston area too, around the beaches here? I'm just curious. No, is that something- I've actually, I've never surfed. I've actually never surfed in New England, which is kind of crazy. I, I need oh, to do well, it. But. Little Narragansett or like Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I think those are the two big spots. I know. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I haven't done it yet. I haven't done it. I um I learned. I went to USC out in LA, and I learned there. 
and I've been surfing on and off since. I, I should qualify this by like, I'm not very good, but I really enjoy it. It's like, it's that's all that matters. Really yeah. Dude, I'm, I'm trying hard to get good and I really enjoy it, but like, I'm not that great right now. I mean, good is relative anyway. If, if, if I saw you surfing, I'd probably be like, damn, that guy's good. Like, yeah, if you I could would, stand up. If you could stand up, you're up you're on the board. You're set. You're set. <laughs> But honestly, things will come full 360 if you can come back home to the Boston area, surf out here, out, out here in Hull. Uh, where from Boston are you specifically? What what area are you from? Uh, so I'm from like Beacon Hill, Back Bay, so right right in the city. Okay, cool, nice, nice, awesome. So, did you see a lot of difference from going from growing up in Boston and then going out to college in LA? I mean, I'd, I'd imagine that going to college at USC, they're with so many kids that were ambitious and uh, you're talking to a kid who's uh, like in while you, while you're at your freshman year, every kid probably has this massive dream and this massive idea. Did you right? Kind of, the one kid that's the manager, the one kid's like, I want to yeah, be, you know, yeah, exactly. exactly. Did you, did you, was it tough to kind of separate yourself in that crowd out in LA or at USC? I just would imagine that every so many kids that are, have a connection or different things like that. So, uh, I'll give kind of a, a long-winded answer here, but I I feel like I had really interesting college experiences because I took a year off before college. So I, I took a year off and I was managing mafia hip-hop artists in Boston. And then I started at Amherst College and I spent a couple months there and then dropped out and took a second year off and then went to USC. Um, so from that, like one big observation was just how uh, like the local culture, like Amherst is a New England prep school culture where it's just an extension of a New England prep school. And USC is dominated by like Orange County culture where uh, like Orange County kids kind of run that school. And and so people show up and morph into uh, like into that type of person. Like people can form into that culture, which I found really interesting And so when I went to USC, I was a 21 year old freshman. And so I was already somewhat established with like who I was and what I cared about. And I was just watching and kind of observing a lot of other people who were going through that process. The posers looking at posers. (laughs) I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, I guess I would more describe it as like, I mean, humans are kind of herd animals. And so it's just, people conforming to what was around them. And LA was so stark because there's very signature things like the haircuts, like the shaved on the side and then longer on top and like just very LA things, the way people dress, the way they cut their hair. And it was interesting seeing people come from new England, the Midwest, like international and two months in, they have the same haircut and the same clothes as people from Southern California. Um, I think, uh, I mean, part of your question was like, was it intimidating going there? And, um, I don't know. I mean, to a certain degree, I feel like college is kind of the same all over the place in the sense that a lot of people are just like trying to party and hang out and do random stuff. And honestly, for me, I was just trying to start businesses. Like I just, I really wanted to do entrepreneurship and get into that. That winner mentality. What did you say? That winner mentality. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I had already had a taste of entrepreneurship from the music world and I was trying to get after it. 
And most of the people I was around were not trying to do that. And so I felt a pretty big disconnect from the community. And I felt a bit out of place just being in college. I don't think it was a USC thing or an Amherst college thing. I think it was just, I struggled to be in that community because most of the people around me were optimizing for different things. Right. It was like an entrepreneur versus system thing almost in a weird way. Cause you had had those experiences beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Um, cause, cause you know, when I first met you, it was when you were working with Malfi and, and, and that whole era of time. Throwback. 2010, right? Like yeah. 2011, something like that. Um, yep. How'd you, so how'd you get involved with that? How did you get into music? Was Malfi and like, you know, the whole star gang uh, situation, was that like the first thing that you got into music wise or did something lead into that? Yeah. So I, I graduated high school in 2010 and Jeffrey also known as Malfi. He went to private school with me at BBNN in Cambridge and he, he went to private school at BBNN and he, like lived with my family for most of the week. So we spent a lot of time together and we did that for two years where he was living with my family and going to school with me. And then he got kicked out of BBN. Um, and that was his junior year and my senior year. And I had been messing around with some internet marketing stuff. Like I, the senior spring at BBN, you do, uh, it's called spring project where you don't go to school and you just get to design like 40 hours of work or projects that you want to do. So I was interning at a tech startup doing marketing stuff and then running a blog for my, uh, for my like high school tennis league. And through that, I just learned some basic internet marketing things. And then Jeffrey started rapping and was pretty good and I kind of just fell into the role as manager. And it honestly just started where we would just hang out and smoke weed. Oh, my parents aren't listening to this, but we would hang out. <laughs> we, we would smoke weed. And then he, like I would put on a beat. He would freestyle. We would record it and then play it back and like critique it and then do that. And we probably did that for two hours a night for three months. And he got good, like through that process, he got really good. And then it just snowballed from there where he then went into the studio and the response to the first few songs that he put out were really strong. Like his maybe third song that he released did, uh, I don't know, 8,000 YouTube views in the first eight days or something, which isn't crazy, but for someone who's brand new, like that's a really good response. And, and at the time, yeah, that right. was, especially, especially back yeah. then, like that was huge. I always yep. say to Nikki, like, like a, a million is the new thousand. It's like, you see a million streams, <laughs> like, like back then, that's like crazy. you see someone with 8,000 8, streams today and you're like, Oh, all right. Like I can respect that. But like back in like 2010 and like, especially before that, like 8,000 streams is like, damn, this guy's actually doing something. Like people are listening to what this guy's doing. Right. Like that was such a different time in the world where you look at like the little, the little nuance of like dat piff and youtube and even the style of the youtube videos right like yeah that, like like mikey said i mean that like the million is now what the thousand was back then the infrastructure is just so different these days that when you hear eight thousand, you go okay that's fine i know that one kid from you know wherever the hell that's like an influencer quote unquote gets eight thousand likes on a picture you think oh you know whatever of it but like it really is such a different world now looking back on it in that specific time. And so 8,000 streams on, you know, YouTube, that's huge. And I mean, we were all just, I mean, to credit to you, we were all 
I think I was a sophomore in high school and Nikki and was a freshman. Mike was in eighth grade. We all knew Melfi. We listened yeah, to Melfi yeah, all the time. Exactly. That's why yeah. we were so excited to talk to you. We listened to Melfi all the time. Melfi was as equal as Meek Mill, as equal as, <laughs> you know, I'm serious. Like in a we weird way, like, yeah. He was in the rotation listening to, I, I have some questions about some of Melfi specific songs that I'll ask <laughs> yeah. you in a bit. <laughs> but, For sure. But I mean, the, it just felt so organic and just so cool because it was, we're hearing guys, for, and especially back then in the early 2000s, late, uh, I mean, early 2010s, late 2000s, cities and identity felt so much stronger. Really? With like yeah. Chief Keef is a guy from Chicago. Oh my right. God, he's from Chicago. And, and then when, in like the later 2010s, you had the Florida crew of, XXX Tentacion and Kodak mm, Black come right. up and you it just Distinctly felt like Hollywood, regional Florida, and yeah. when when Melfi came out and it was this guy is from Boston he's ours it just felt like such an amazing grassroots experience and it was totally word of mouth you were talking and again we were in high school and we didn't have Twitter or Instagram what it was at the time it was just in the hallways Listen to this Melfi song. Hallways and mixtapes and YouTube yeah, links. And Piff and here's yeah. here's literally a, a mixtape that I downloaded off my computer and yeah. it's Melfi's mixtape and you'd play it in Boston your car. Lights, you'd play it right? and you'd like, play Boston it in your room. Lights, it was just such a I still, I still bang yeah. it every, every now and then. I'll I'll put it on like jam out and get it. <laughs> <laughs> like get ready to like go surf in some you know some some tropical island and Boston Lights comes on. Yeah, there's like something infectious about that. Like people right. are just confident to be where they're from and they want to preach that to the whole world. No, and I just feel that that yeah. just kind of has disappeared a little bit with social media. That it's kind of all conglomerated together. There's so much it's oversaturated to the point where everybody's just trying to mimic one thing and then you don't even know it loses its identity it loses its you know authenticity in a lot of ways when you see newer artists nowadays come up on spotify and you see their instagram ads and you're like all right well this could people just emulating it like you said la culture people just conforming to what they think is going to be big in 2020 2021 and 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 yeah it, it's very nostalgic and very aesthetically pleasing to look back on something like the 2010s that we don't you know it's not as you know big as like the 80s or the 70s where you think of those big ideas but like now that we're having this conversation and sitting down and talking yeah, about the nitty gritty we're old now we, we feel old. fucking old yeah, yeah, yeah. It's God. but the fact that we're reminiscing <laughs> right? about like Melfi as like a nostalgic thing I mean yeah. I felt like it was like two weeks ago seriously yeah. when you look we at like pictures from the early eyes. 2000s you're like damn I want that aesthetic and yeah. like wait a minute I lived Over through that a decade ago now yeah we are old we dude are old. It, it, it's funny now as I think back on the Melfi stuff because it's something even though we didn't make it and I, I think we should have made it like it, it still kind of pisses me off that that it didn't happen because we got we were right there and then it didn't happen. It sucks. And, and we can dig in on that. But um, it's funny when I talk to people about the experience, because anyone who's not like high school age or, or around that or maybe even college age from the Boston area has no idea who the hell he is. Right. But people like people high school age at that time in Boston, I feel like so our awareness was high. It was really How high. exciting. It was like, this guy is ours. We have a guy coming out of Boston. He yeah. is rapping. He is awesome. He's making high quality, great <laughs> songs. Like he made it on the dad piff homepage. Yeah, like, seriously. Like, that is are, it. That these is, are things that if you tell a kid that's 16 now when we were 16 at the time they'd be like what are you what are you talking about yeah. he, like he Who didn't did have he 500 views on his yeah. first video yeah yeah, yeah. You know? it just, yeah. It's just boston city hall plaza 20 
summer 2011. Yeah, he opened up for Mac Miller. That's crazy. Yeah, the, the Boston about. Urban Music Festival, man. What a yeah, sh- man. what a show. What a because I I remember that specifically because you had this whole lineup. I remember was Mo Pope was a local guy that was there. Famer Juliet were local guys that Juliet were there. Is another one. Yeah, dude, yeah. yeah. All these local dudes, and then you know you think of these guys where I know right when you have a crowd of twenty thousand kids there, they're throwing glass Hennessy bottles, water bottles flying. Not a lot of people <laughs> are there for the local guys. They're there for Mac Miller. They're like Mac Miller's coming and doing a show at City Hall. But I remember distinctly when Malfi had come on the stage, that was as close as it gets to like them being hyped for someone who is not the headliner. Because when Malfi came on, it was the same ordeal. People were going wild. People were like waving around and people were crowd surfing and doing their thing. And you see the videos of that too. And I remember that's one of those things where people felt that excitement of like the Boston guy kind of stepping up. And, and when in a lineup with like four or five Boston artists, he was the guy. He was the one. I mean, he came close to like, you know, and no disrespect, obviously no disrespect from to Mac Miller. Like Mac Miller probably had like obviously the obviously the biggest, you know, fan engagement, enthusiasm, everything Bang around that it. Place out. For yeah. no question. Malfi came as close as you can imagine someone from Boston as an opener being, though. At at the time, genuinely, and I was at the show. Melfi and Mac Miller were not that far off from exactly, each other. genuinely, yeah. Yeah. I, I, especially in Boston. And Melfi was a Boston guy, but at the time, they were not that far off. Standing in the crowd, the excitement level in the crowd between Melfi and Mac Miller was so similar. Yeah. That is just like such an awesome experience. It's wild, and it's, it, this is totally us just reminiscing about our high school years. I mean, probably <laughs> sound like losers to people who don't understand it, but it was incredible. That was a highlight for me, that show. I mean, obviously for us, it was like, I mean, I think it was somewhere around 50,000 people. I mean, it was, yeah, it was, was a crazy. ton of people. Uh, and that was, that was a great moment. And in that moment in time, like Miss Newton, the music video for Miss Newton had come out about a month earlier, which I think this would have been, I think the Boston Urban Music Festival was, I want to say it was August 4th, 2011 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah somewhere close miss newton came out either end of june or early july and it did uh i don't know like a hundred thousand views in the first month which was good for us at the time and then we released his mixtape boston lights i think maybe the same day or the day after the boston urban music festival and it did maybe like 14 or fifteen thousand downloads in the first month and like we that was when it was rolling the momentum was was super strong there and then we all just it just crashed and burned with like within four months so what 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 do you think happened there because i am very curious to know i mean you know because i remember that 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 specific peak and that that time where we could probably all from the outside looking in tell like that was you know malfi's peak as an artist and and everything that was going on like you said the momentum was there you know you guys were like you guys were snowballing it was the the shows not just that but then you guys were doing the middle east shows and you guys were doing well with like your shows you're doing well with the bigger like the bigger festival and that kind of stuff the mixtape had come out so what what was it looking like you know the path from there to whatever may have happened the next six months, the next year, the next two years moving forward. To just add on to that, I think we're removed enough from it now that it isn't, this isn't like an incessive question. Looking back now, what was the step that you wish you made as the manager? Definitely. That you think would yeah. have sent you on to the another? Like you said, because you were like, yeah, we should have done it. We should have made it. So where where does the should have come and, into place? And again, like you're living a great life. <laughs> like you've traveled to so many countries. It's awesome. But we're all, we, we, Nikki and I, Mike, we're all still kind of focused on music. And 
I think like deep down in our guts, we still want to maybe manage an artist, maybe get to the next level. Our dreams are still kind of LA. We're still young enough that we have that idea. What was the step that you think that you missed? Well, well, to, to touch on one thing that you said there at the end of like reminiscing of like what would have happened. So his, like his career not working out and hence my career in the music world, not working out is one of the best things that's happened to me. Cause that like course, helped yes, me yes, pivot right, yeah. into startups and tech. And like, we can go in into uh, talking about like music industry and, and past and career past. Cause it's, I mean, it's challenging, but um, my big, I would say that my big regret and what I would have done differently is I would have gotten him out of Boston and I would have, we, in retrospect, we should have moved to New York, Atlanta, Miami, or LA. Um, and for a few reasons, but I think the biggest ones are the, I think the reason when I think about like, why didn't things work out and what happened like around then when, you know, we had crazy momentum and then all of a sudden things went super sideways. And I, for me, it really boils down to like ego, weed, entourage being like the three big ones. And, and then I guess the fourth one being just like, not, uh, well, it, I, maybe it runs deeper. The fourth one being like not putting in the time and, and not working as hard. Mm. And the, and the fifth one being like, uh, we started clashing. So like behind the scenes, when like we had a, we had a really good thing going, uh, and we had a diehard fan base, like things were, were strong and the trajectory looks great. And the basic plan from the beginning, like essentially before we started, I'd taken a few months and like really thought about how can we scale and what do we need to do to scale and like, how can we make this process fast? And the, the really basic plan was um, like leverage Boston pride by like really repping Boston. And that was like a branding strategy. So leverage that and then leverage this like college hip hop market where you had all these college hip hop blogs that didn't have great music, but had a lot of publicity and like kind of toe the balance between like where he's from the inner city and the private school uh, world and like relating to people on that level. And when things started working, uh, we started clashing on that vision where he wanted to make, he wanted to change the branding and like, and change. um, I mean, we kind of clashed on control, uh, like me and him on um, who was making strategic calls about when songs were getting released and what the rollout strategy would be and like different things like that. Um, and it sucked. I mean, it really sucked. Like, especially as being friends, that's getting into business. Yeah. It's, it's challenging. I mean, I think it's, and obviously he would, he would tell it, I'm sure he would tell a different version of of the story, but, but, um, I think it's, I think it's challenging when all of a sudden 
people are tweeting at you all every day and saying, Oh my God, I love you. You changed my life. Like you're the greatest person that's ever existed. Uh, it's difficult to stay super grounded and to, to, and to, um, to not let that affect you in any way. When people are like worshiping you as a God, it's like, how do you stay really normal? Um, and I, I think it's, it's a challenging thing and it's really unique to like music more than anything where, um, we're just staying like staying consistent, staying level headed, staying like kind of staying the course. I mean, I, I think, one big lesson I've taken away from that experience is just how like when you start having momentum is when the hard work begins, like, you know, someone like Eminem or or these other people who have had really long careers or even companies. Like if you look at Amazon, if you look at Facebook, if you look at Google, like companies that have consistently hit with products the same way artists consistently hit with albums, like, they're grinding for decades and uh it just it's it's all about like the process and and pushing forward because that coming into this and knowing that we were going to talk to you and again you clearly heard that we were Malfi fans we've we thought about him a lot in high school and then it kind of just disappeared my main question was going to be did was it you thought like not you the the collective thought they made it before they actually made it. They had made it in Boston. Everyone in Boston was a huge fan, especially in high school. And we talked about the gra- grassroots growing the local fan base, the the lemonade freestyle when he shouts out every town in Massachusetts. And I I just vividly remember listening to that and he's starting naming off the towns and I'm sitting there and I'm just like, oh, he said Weymouth. Yes, yes. And like that, that as a high school kid, that mattered. And and again, like rap and music was so different. It's tough to explain it to somebody that doesn't understand, but that meant a lot. That Again, Melfi and Mac Miller and Chitty Bang and Kid Cudi was another level but they all kind of felt B.O.B. They were all kind of around the same level. And then Malfi came in as the Boston guy. It felt legitimate. It felt real. You felt excited. And then is that what it was? Do you, did you think everyone around him felt we've made it? Let's smoke a ton of weed and sit in the studio and not really do anything or not go to New York, not go to fly out to L.A. and be there for four months with working with producers or artists that have heard of them before? So I think, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a level of a, a level of complacency for sure. Um, and in reality, and this is the, the challenging thing about music and fame is, you know, we, he was very well known in Boston at that time. If we went to a Red Sox game, 10 people are stopping him. If we're walking down the street, people are yelling at him from cars. So like, and that was great. Uh, but we were still broke. Like all the money that we were taking in, we were spending on videos and music and different things. And we weren't really making money. So we very much had not made it. Um, yeah. I mean, the other thing I guess that I should definitely mention is in during that time when things kind of fell apart, I went off to college for a few months. I ended up dropping out and coming back and trying to piece things back together. But I definitely 
hold some of the the blame, let's say, because I wasn't there for a lot of it. Like I was, I was off at Amherst College, um, and I was still grinding, but I wasn't there in person. And yeah, so I've I've definitely, I feel like I've I've talked about a lot of problems that that haven't involved me, and ultimately. But it's just, Ultimately, we are, I think we're removed from it. It's just like facts, yeah, you know? Yeah, and we're just, yeah, I'm just super, but, because I am just genuinely su- like super interested and interested in Dude, it should have happened, man. It should have happened. That's what I know. That's a, I think you can hear it in my voice. It's yeah. just like the momentum was nuclear. And it was grassroots. We're like three kids, four kids sitting here who yeah, it was all knew Malfi, loved Malfi. And it just, it's, it's a story that is an example. You guys are all been successful afterwards, but I think we're just trying to learn right. know, the lessons from it because, you know, I think in all of our dreams, like in the next two years, we get a guy from Massachusetts who's awesome. We know a bunch of rappers. We know a bunch of producers in Massachusetts right now who are awesome, who make great music, but you could absolutely see it in two years that you go, holy shit, it's over. Yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, and I saw a tweet about it the other day who it was... uh Oh my God, what was his name? It was Oompa, it's local artist uh, from Boston, local, local rap artist, tweeted something about, you know, the curse of Boston, the curse of the Boston music scene, which, you know, I guess if you want to look at it with that, that, you know, fairy tale way of the, it's just being a solely a curse, then fine, you can look at it that way. But I think that brings up a, you know, a theme that, that is constantly recurring is this idea of artists that do make it in this area because, because it's funny, you know, and I think on Hot 97, they talked about it at one point in time is that, that, you know, Boston amongst a few other cities are, are very big as far as advertising and music go in general. These are huge. Boston's a huge music market. We the all want of venues, it to happen. Everyone here wants it to happen. Yeah, but besides that, just just the live music scene here, the advertising, the radio station, everything. Like there is play at the Middle East when when before right. COVID, you could play at the Middle East five days a week if you wanted to. Yeah. You could open for anyone. You huge want. consumership, but. It's not like Atlanta, where you know when you look at Boston compared to Atlanta and compared to to Houston, consumership wise, it's not that far off. But then when you look at the actual music scene that is here versus all these other cities, clearly there's a massive discrepancy, like massive. And so every time that we get this glimpse of a new artist coming out, or oh that's gonna be the guy now, and then and then a couple years later, okay this is the guy now. This guy's got a collab with with so and so, and this guy was was got a co-sign on this station. This guy's it's, opening up for fucking Mac Miller in front right, of fifty thousand right. people. And it's, then we can go into specific names if we want moving forward. You know from two thousand eleven now because we all know there have been quite a few artists that have had this glimpse of of being the next big guy whether it's signing with labels or co-signing with people and then somehow it 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 seems to always end up disappearing like that curse but is I, kind I just, of a legitimate I thing i know but i just think that blaming the city is such a cop out think oh no 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 i'm not blaming the city yeah. my thing really comes down to more of the artists themselves and this idea of this complacency you're how do you the blow artists, up in your city and you how, feel like a superstar? How do the artists combat? And that's a tough thing. It's a vice. It's a vice. Like anybody else has a vice, whether it be alcohol, drugs, sex, you name it. It's a vice. I, I mean, if you get a little bit of clout in a city that doesn't have that local scene, I don't. I don't blame you for wanting to be like I'm the shit. If I get a million streams today, I'm going to be like, yo, I am the shit. I did it. I get. I understand it. But like, how do the artists like combat that? Because what keeps happening is this curse is real. Shout out to Oompa. It's real. That tweet is so legit. It is real. There's this curse where people feel like they made it in this city. They made it. They've like you know 
they've, 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 they've stood out from the rest of the local artists that are here. And there's a lot of artists nowadays, especially like there's a, t- there's a shit ton just in rap alone, let alone all genres. And so, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting to think about that complacency. It's a good point that you kind of bring up because I feel like on and on it keeps happening. You know, it's like it's not just a one-off. It's just it's a recurring theme that we keep seeing again and again and again. And I think we're gonna keep seeing it for the next few years. Another thing Probably. that interests me is like you see like okay, Chief Keef, Chicago, Twenty One Savage, Atlanta. You you see these guys who have made it, and you know exactly where they're from, where they represent, like the city that they're like that they love and and they want that to be known everybody a lot of times you see like an artist right and say it's Joyner Lucas or someone like that, and you're like, it'll take you like a few months. And you're like, Wait, that's the guy from Worcester, right? Yeah, from he's from yeah. Worcester. He's like yeah. a bit. He like Eminem, I think, found him. You'll early, find yeah. out they're from this area, but it's like they almost make it because they don't want people to know that they're from this area. Not, I shouldn't like put like put place that on them like that, but it's almost like they don't represent the city, and that's like somehow tied into the fact that they've made it a lot bigger than a lot of people who do represent Boston to such a high level that everyone here wants to happen so much ultimately i'm mean, because ultimately even if every single person in boston heard your stuff like literally every single person heard it but nobody else in any other state or city heard your music it still wouldn't amount to just somebody who had like 20 percent of each market yeah. so, so, so for my question to you is you clearly felt that energy you felt that everyone in boston was listening to the music do you can you look back now and say okay how do we capture the New York market how do we get because ki- kids in New York love listening to rap music there's a massive market but I think it's tough to to say these dudes are from Boston and they're making awesome music because dudes from New York are probably like, okay or guys from even Philly or the, you know Lil Uzi Vert and Meek Mill and then New York is countless artists do you can you look back now and especially with your business acumen that you have thinking what's the way for a Boston artist to break into the New York scene and get fans in New York or get fans in LA or Miami. So what I think one of our issues was like almost repping Boston too hard. And and you mentioned this with talking about how some of the, the artists who have made it haven't been repping. And I mean, one very simple way to appeal to everyone is to not, like, uh, let's say identify. limit your, yeah. yeah, not, not identify, not say like, Hey, I'm part of this one group and like rah, rah, this group. Uh, there's plenty of counter examples though. Like, I mean, you look at machine gun Kelly's done really well and he reps Cleveland super hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure, I mean, I'm not that tied into the hip hop scene anymore, but I'm sure there, there are like plenty of other people. It's also different. Like, LA and New York are very aspirational places. Like a lot of people want to move to LA and New York. And so when Kendrick Lamar makes a song about like, you know, women, weed and weather in LA, like LA is like an international attractive hub. Uh, New York. From Boston listening to it, it's like, yeah, I do want to go to LA for the women, the weed and the weather. (laughs) That's awesome. Very rarely vice versa. You guys talk about like the Boston, like the red line Fenway and like the Pats. It's like, okay. Yeah. Boston doesn't have that same draw. Um, I think one other quick point to touch on as far as reasons why Boston has maybe struggled as a music city. I think a big part of it is um, like production, production, production talent. And, uh, and then as you guys have mentioned, like other big artists, 
it's much easier. Like if there's great producers, it's much easier to make good songs. Um, and that wasn't really our issue as we got further along. Like our main producer is this guy, Lewis Bell, who's actually now like maybe the number one producer in the world right now. Um, and he's, he's a beast. He, he's, uh, like post Malone's executive producer on everything and has done like a lot of post Malone's big tracks, Justin Bieber. He did, um, Havana with, which was what is that? Uh, Camila Cabello, like young thug. Yeah. 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 He's had a bunch of really, really big songs. He's done a bunch of Taylor Swift songs. Like he, he set the record for the most like billboard hot, 100 or like top 10 songs in a decade. And he did it only in like a few years. Like he he's been crushing it over the last few years. Um, but he moved to LA and he's out. Yeah. And so I think that's a pattern that you see is the best artists and the big money are in the big markets. And if you want to work, if you want to collab with the other big artists, if you want to collab with the other big producers, like this guy, Louis Bell is from Boston you have to be in those markets and like, that's where things happen. And so it's just very difficult. You know, if you're competing with other people who are, who have top tier producers and, and that's tough to compete with if you don't have that. Nikki uh, and I have been, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Nikki and I have been working on music for a while and stuff like that. And like a recurring theme that we hear when we talk to like, you know, mixing engineers or people who have kind of established themselves around here, they are always flying out to LA like in two weeks or in a month or last week I was just in LA. Like they are always going out there and trying to collaborate with other artists and get involved in that scene. And they're not just focused on doing things here and, you know, kind of like building their brand here. Like they are always traveling and always trying to get involved. And like you said, those cities that almost have that stigma of like, you know, nobody looks at, I shouldn't say nobody, but it's, it's not the Boston isn't a city where people are like, Oh, I want to go to Boston for the women weather. I mean, like it's fucking like, it was nice out today, this weekend, it's going to fucking snow again. So, you know what I mean? Like no, no one's thinking of Boston as one of those cities. Like, you know, I got to be out there, you know, strictly like for the culture, for the weather, for the women, like it's not, there's no, uh, yeah, exactly. It's tough. But so, uh, just in terms of you, when you were a manager, looking at like a tour or even spot shows, opening shows, were you looking at that from Alfie in New York or, you know, saying, fuck it, three of us are flying down to Atlanta. You're opening up for this guy and we're doing that. Were, did, were you guys aggressive enough with that or do you regret that a little bit? Yeah, no, we were trying. Um, I mean, towards the end, we were, we were rolling with shows. I thought we were doing pretty well. It was challenging. I mean, doing shows in New York, like we opened for Hoodie Allen in New York. We also headlined a show in New York City and drew like 16 people or something. It was bad. But, but, uh, I mean, we just didn't have the fan base there. So as an opener, you're not, you're not that appealing if you can't draw people and, that's the same thing with, you know, Middle East. You, you mentioned how you can go open up for acts. You sell tickets, like you sell yeah, tickets yeah, to get, grind. to get that spot. Um, we just, because the music was very Boston focused, our fan base was heavily Boston focused. Um, and that was a double-edged sword. Like that helped things pop off really fast, but the next move was definitely, we needed to drop that and, 
try to appeal to, to a bigger audience. And, and your previous question was, you know, if you're a Boston artist, how would you appeal to the masses? I think I, I guess my answer would be like, don't feel, don't make people feel excluded by repping too hard and then just make good music. Like I think ultimately people want to listen to good music and, uh, yeah. And I think they want to relate. It, yeah. And it, it comes down to like, when I think about our strategy and what worked well for us was we, we use distribution channels, which we used, like we leveraged Barstool sports um, by like giving them some shout outs that we figured would give us publicity and get us an in with them, which worked really well. Uh, we used the like college music, hip hop blogs and that gave us a lot of publicity. So that like helped to feed things. And then we had one kind of like central fan engagement hub, which was Facebook. And we were early on Facebook fan pages back when you had a lot of reach on Facebook. And then we used YouTube and videos as our, let's call it our like viral tool. And so I think, I guess in, in simple terms, it's if you can nail if you can nail virality on its own, forget everything else. If you can just nail virality, I think that's 99% of the game. Um, and even in like, I don't even know much about uh, Joyner Lucas, if I'm saying the name right, but I have seen that video that he made with the conversation with the yes, white guy. Right. That yes. went viral. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That went viral. And so I think in simple terms, it's like virality solves everything. Uh, and right now the platform to use to go viral, like back when I was in it, I thought it, it was YouTube, I think was really the way to do it. Now, right now it's TikTok. And so like, if I were managing an artist, I, w- I would probably focus 99% of our time on TikTok. Which is interesting because that's definitely where you are now. So if you want to segue into that, we can definitely get into that a little bit. Just to get into something that you're doing very currently. Um, yeah, tell us about the TikTok grind and, 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 and how you kind of realized, you know, because because like you said, you know, you you obviously were on this new path after the music scene where you started traveling, started working on your own, your own endeavors beyond music in a tech and stuff and then now you're on tiktok and you've been doing pretty well i mean you've you've definitely you've accumulated at least you know at least a million if not more views solely views on tiktok so tell us a little bit about that yeah so i'm really focused like this year my in so i've the last four years i've been wandering around the world and building digital businesses and have now like reached a place of financial retirement so I can just work on whatever I'm passionate about and whatever I think is impactful in the world. And right now I'm really focused on creating content, helping people who want to like make passive income and travel. And I've realized like TikTok is just such a powerful platform. And like the reason why that has become really my main focus right now for reach is I guess two reasons. One is when you looked at what was going like viral during the COVID pandemic and what was really shifting people's viewpoints on things, especially around like misinformation, it was video content, like pandemic, uh, the, 
the strip mall doctor who was talking about hydroxychloroquine, which did 30 million views in one day on Facebook. Uh, and then a bunch of other videos, like it was video content that was going viral. And that really hammered home for me that like, I need to be focusing my time on video and YouTube is challenging to grow on at this point. Like it's not as easy as it once was. And it's kind of YouTube feels like it's a, uh, progressive grind where if you want a video to hit a million views, you need a bunch of videos that hit smaller numbers and you need to build subscribers or you need to get like a big shout out. Like you can't just put up one video and it's going to go to a million. Right. The systems for just getting reach are just like, it's just, it's so oversaturated that it's nearly impossible except for TikTok. TikTok is literally, that's that's mind blowing. Literally you post your first video on TikTok. It could be a million. It really could be. Holy shit. This thing's blowing up. I threw a video on and I got 700,000 views, 600,000. Just like, yeah. Yeah, Like Nikki and I have both gone semi viral. Semi viral. Yeah. At certain (laughs) points. Doing what? What were the videos? Mine was, I went to the harpoon brewery in Boston and I had them fill up a cup with like, literally everything they had on tap and i threw that on tiktok and then boom just like blew up and then he had one too yeah there. mine was mine was a little more calculated <laughs> i i did it i did it slightly i did it with the intention of blowing up and it kind of worked for me i I'm a forklift operator in a warehouse, right? So I took a, a penny and I put it on the ground and I put a water bottle right next to it and I like flipped the penny onto the forks and dropped it in the water bottle all with the forklift. And that kind of went up for a little while, but my question to you, so I was talking to Nikki about this last night actually. And it, it, it's intriguing that you say that like TikTok is so useful for reach because like that I super agree with, but I always say like, I feel like it's hard to almost like build a substantial, like concrete following on that platform itself. Cause you see a lot of people who have a couple of viral videos. They kind of build a little following on TikTok, but then you go to their, like say their YouTube or something like that. And they don't have too much evidence of people actually being interested in what they're doing. It's more just the algorithm kind of like blessing them for a few videos and it kind of works from there. So how would you say like, like what's your approach to actually building up? Not, not necessarily just um, gaining like uh, reach, but also like maintaining that, sort of influence and that range on uh, a platform like TikTok? I think it's a good question. Um, How I've thought about it in general is like get to scale in one place and that'll help you get to scale everywhere. Mm. And to your point though, it's not that simple because you do have people that have, let's say 500,000 followers, a million followers. And on Instagram, they have 15,000 on YouTube. They have 15, 20,000. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't necessarily carry over super cleanly. Um, but I think, uh, I'm trying to think about this. Um, I guess a better question would be like, what, like, just like what you personally, like what, what has been like your approach to like actually building like a concrete following, like on TikTok itself that you feel will carry over onto other platforms. Well, I think it comes down to like, if you have a clear, let's call it, I mean, if you're an artist, it's simple. Cause your niche is, you know, your music, right? But yeah. If you're not an artist, it's like, what is your niche? Why are people going to follow you? Uh, and then weaving in to your videos, how you add value, not on TikTok. So I've right. seen it with, 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 you know, an artist who's drawing and she's saying, if you want to see the final painting, like go to my Instagram, and for me, 
and for me, what I've been doing is being like, Hey, if you want to reach, like I'll, I'll do a short form guide of something. So almost like forcing that interaction. Yeah. And be like, Hey, if you want to read the full details or you want to understand right. how to do this, go to this link and like go to my website. Yeah. And so trying to pull people off, but pulling them off by adding value, not by saying like, Hey, uh, if you like me here, go check out my YouTube. Which, right. I mean, that's also decent, but like add value. Um, mm where, I mean, it could be, Hey, if you like this song, you can listen to the full song over here. Mm -hmm. Um, and just like trying to pull people off Mm -hmm. and get them to connect with you other places. Cause I think that is the difference with TikTok compared to, I'm sure, you know, with the marketing and, uh, like Facebook videos, remember in 2007, 2000, 2016, 2017, this Facebook videos, companies changed their entire infrastructure and they hired people because they're like, holy shit, this guy's getting 900,000 views on his Facebook videos. But Facebook was just fudging the numbers. And if you scrolled by it for a second, they counted it as a view. But with TikTok, it does seem like there's a difference with interaction. And I I mean, we all respect TikTok, so I can say, but it does seem like there's younger kids who are willing to support you because Mm. they want to and they want to be a part of something that is like up and coming and cool. So that does seem like a difference between because the, the, the views and the interactions that you get on TikTok, it does when it first happened and I was first looking at it, I'm like, how does this video have 2.5 million likes. This is a video that's making my brain bleed out of my ears. <laughs> but, but once you have an engaging thing and that's where I saw with like the TikTok videos that I really enjoy and I have started to like and it, it feeds the algorithm to you are videos that get 50,000 likes and like less, you know, the ones that really blow up, they do kind of feel like it's artificial and they're pumping it to everybody. They're choosing to do it. But if you have a message or you have a consistent theme throughout your feed, or you have a brand on TikTok, you you're going to get engagements. You're going to get people. And again, like kids, which is nothing wrong with it at all that are willing to, and with what you're doing, want to learn, want to grow their own business. They don't want to sit in an office. They want to follow what you're doing. So it, it does seem like it's, I think a lot of people kind of have a hairy eyeball of the Facebook view thing that happened from a few years ago, but it, it does feel genuine. Do you, do you think, do you know what I'm talking about with the Facebook views? Do you think that it is genuine or do you yeah. think that we're going to find out in like I mean, seven months that we're like, Oh yeah, they're doing the exact same thing that Facebook was doing that you swipe through and it's, you get a million views. I don't know how, like how the views work exactly, but I mean, I do know I had one video. I had a video from two weeks ago. That's now at 750,000 views mm. and I've gotten a, ton of followers. I've gotten a bunch, a lot of website visits. Like, uh, I've gotten a ton of comments. So people are engaging. And I think circling back to the, to the last question about like, uh, kind of what is scaling on TikTok do for you? And like, and why is it important? How does it feed other things? I think one big principle is just like, if people like you, like if they like your music, if they like what you're doing, enough, then they'll find you other places. And I think, I also think like a follow on TikTok means less 
than a subscription on YouTube or oh, a follow on Instagram. Absolutely. Because just because of the way people m- move through and like, Design, you don't even just roll along. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you don't even like, I'll follow someone and they may not show me their, vi- one of their videos for like weeks, if, mm. if ever. So it's not like I'm forcing it into my feed. It's like, it's much more because you have the following and the for you. And so it's, it's much more ad hoc and it's a way lower commitment. So people are much more prone to follow. Um, so that like kind you've, of, you've seen the benefit the of, you've seen the benefits of the higher interact when you post a video that gets a lot of interaction and a lot of likes, you do see the benefit on your website, on your other platforms you have, cause you are, in this conversation, you are the most successful on this platform. So you have seen the benefits of it. Yeah. I mean, I saw a website like visit spike and I've gotten uh, a decent number of email subscriptions from it. Like nothing crazy. I probably got, so it's done 750,000 views. I probably got like, uh, I don't know, 300, 350 email subscriptions, which let's call those, those are like the deeper fans. Where, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that that's, is, that's huge. That's, yeah, that's huge. That's, yeah, yeah that, that's honestly. Because like you said, that requires a lot of commitment. It's not just that swipe through. That, exactly. That's, that that's what genuine interest. Yeah. yeah. But it was like 750,000 views and that's led to, I don't know, 9,000 follows, uh, like 1,500 comments, 2000 website visits, something like that. So the conversion is not amazing, but I think it also, but it is there. It, all, it builds, it yeah. builds. It, it's a, it's a wild platform. It really yeah, it is. Really and like, is. I feel like we don't even, the, the potential of it is so nuclear. And again, like you watch a video that has 2 million likes. It's just like, Oh my God, how, and it does feel like they man, maneuver and they navigate it to put, it in people's faces and it's just figuring out how to get it in front of people's faces that when, cause you know that there's a guy that's sitting in the TikTok office that goes, okay, on half of the people that are using the app on their third video, we're showing them this video and they're all going to like it. But and it's, it's got, but, blow but, up. yeah. And it's also, it's yeah. gonna be fascinating. Cause if you, if what were we saying? No, 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 no. Go, go, well, I was just going to say, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of scarier than that in the sense that it's all happening automatically on the fly with like machine learning algorithms right. where they're just like, we're, we're, we're all in the middle of some big science experiment with like the smartest machines and code in the world that are just like manipulating our brains to mm-hmm. try to hook us in, make us addicted. It's wild. You'll like put a video down and come back to a five minutes later and it'll either have 80,000 more views or two more views. It, right. It's ridiculous. And you like, have no way, way, you have absolutely no, say, no yeah. way of knowing. Like I couldn't differentiate between a video on TikTok. I mean, some, a lot of them that you, you can, but there's some videos that you look and you go, how in, I, this is what, cause I'm kind of like newer to it. I got into it in the last like two months. I'm still swiping through it and going, how in God's name did they make this video have 2 million likes? They're having some algorithm that just pumps it through and it's just finding your way in and it changes your entire business and your entire life. And it's definitely fascinating because whether you look at the algorithm as being somewhat of a genuine thing where there's some kind of system that that goes into play or you really think there's somebody at a TikTok office sitting there going, this is the one, that's (laughs) not the one. There's something that's fucking happening (laughs) in that building. But it's funny, right? Because no matter what it's not like they want it to fail like they're not sitting there going we want less advertising views we want less views even if there is like if we believe in like the 
highest of the conspiracy theory of, yeah, they're sitting there going, this is the video we're going to pump out. We're going to pump out views on it. They must legitimately believe in these specific no, no, videos. I think, I think it benefits the advertisers that imagine sitting in a board meeting with marketing guys who went to marketing school and they've been in marketing for 30 years, literally, who have a massive client and they go, hey, look at this. This video has 50 <laughs> million views and they're real. And they go, oh my God, what? There's video that's like six seconds long and it's some dude going like, Meh. like literally, those are the videos that like blow up on TikTok. I still don't, I feel like I'm like the novice in the crew. I still don't get it. Yeah, I'm telling you that they're maneuvering it some way. They must. They, and then whoa, so we I just got to get onto it, and then you hit the wave. It's like you're in the ocean. You catch the wave, and you are like... A little one, surfing reference for some, you there. Someone in this <laughs> is, is going to have a 1.5 million liked video in the next three months if we keep consistently posting. That's what, I, that's yeah. what it also, I think it gets you with the marketing and the interactivity of it. You go, okay, I don't... Me, again, like I'm kind of a newer user. I don't understand how this video blew up to this many likes. So if I just keep posting, they're going to grab one of them and they're going to keep putting it in front of people's faces and I'm going to get a million likes. That's how I kind of have it in my brain so, if I keep posting. So I think it works. Like the way I think about it is like TikTok takes a video that you put out and they show it to people that they think might like it. And they do that based on the hashtags, based on the music. Um, and they run, let's call it an experiment where they'll show it to 50, a hundred people. And then they, they on the fly, like their algorithm just looks at how many people followed, how many people commented, how many people shared, how many people saved, like how many people liked, and they just build kind of, let's call it like an engagement score on that video. And then based on how that does, and based on the demo, like, the demographics of who engaged with it and what other types of videos they engage with and what their interests are, then it shows it to another hundred people or another mm -hmm. thousand people or whatever. And if the engagement's poor, like they'll just kill it. Like it will die. And if the engagement's watch it, good, you can watch the views literally just stop. Totally yeah. stop. It's blowing up, blowing up. It just stop. Oh, I have Crazy. videos that haven't gotten a view since like, like four months ago. Yeah, like they you, haven't you'll put it a on and then watch since. Yeah, yeah, one minute it goes by, you're like, whoa, 100 views. Two minutes, you're like, 300 views. This is 500, you're capped. You're done. That's it. 20 minutes later, 500 is all you're going to get. But, but I think it, they just keep like, if it's doing well, it'll like, let's say the video that went viral for me was in digital nomading. So they, it goes like they show it to a lot of people interested in digital nomading and then they'll, and then they like tap it out that whole audience and then they'll experiment with people interested in like remote work. Mm. And then they'll start experimenting like, oh, I wonder if entrepreneurship people will like this. And if the engagement isn't good, then the reach to those audiences will get killed. Um, but if the engagement continues to be good, like the ones that go mega viral and get, let's call it like 5 million likes, it's because any type of audience is like this is engaged where they're watching it on loop. They're commenting, they might be sharing, they might be following the person. And if you have a video like that, then they'll just send it out to everyone because they know that it's going to get a good response. I always wonder about that. That one part you said about like the watching the video on loop thing. Cause I like me and Nikki both, and I'm sure like Johnny can like understand this too, is like I've had videos where I feel like I'll get like, 
for like the first 10 seconds, just as many likes as I have views. And I'm like, this is it. Like people are engaging and then it'll just still cap off. But then I have to wonder like what the other like factors are in that situation. Like are people watching it again? Like are people sharing it? Are people like clicking on my profile? Like there's so many things that go into it that you don't think about. Cause you see like, Oh, I got 10 likes on 10 views. Like that's huge. Like this is, this is going to go crazy. But then like, it kind of just caps off and you're like, okay, well, what am I missing from that sort of like, what, what in this equation is not happening that would lead to, you know, a hundred views, a thousand views, 10, you know what I mean? And I just think, it, I think it really is the evil genius of social <laughs> media. Cause I mean, think about like Instagram, even like two years ago, be like, okay, I'm going to post this at 10 o'clock in the morning because everyone's sitting at their desk or they're sitting whatever and they're going to like it. Then it's like, okay, but now I'm going to post this and they're going to show it to everybody because everyone's on their For You page swiping through and it, and then you can be a normal person who doesn't have a lot of followers, but you make the perfect video and, and then every view, every user has it in their brain. If I just make the video, like you said, that 10 people like it and they all like laugh and they share it to their friends, they're going to blow it up. No matter how crappy your phone camera quality is, no matter honestly how unfunny it is, like whatever it is, if it gets the engagements and I mean, you got to think about some of the videos that you look on the for you page that have 2 million likes. I guarantee you those like they're not marketing majors. They don't know why it blew up, but the algorithm knows. So that's what just has you just like trust in and be like, okay, I'm just going to keep pumping out these videos because the algorithm knows what's going to get it to these people and they know better than me. So I'm just going to keep posting and posting and posting and flipping through and liking and liking and liking. And I just, I, I think it is like the evil genius. Not, not even evil. I don't, I don't want to call it evil, <laughs> but, but it kind of is. It's the perfect, it, when I first went on, I was like, this is it. This is the perfect social media that just would have you roll through for, and they, they have the, the things where it's like, whoa, you've been scrolling for way too long, Go man. Get some water, <laughs> yeah. When I first saw that, I was like, whoa, this is intense. Cause Has I it lost four an hours? hour. Yeah. I lost, I lost an hour and a half. Is that a thing? It really tells you. Yeah, it's like, dude, like, like the, the Netflix guy, the queue. Like, on and he's like, dude, a, a guy like, literally stops you and he's like, you get go get some water, take a walk outside, and then come back to the videos. They'll still no, be here. I wow. swear to God, the videos will be here tomorrow. Take a break, dude. Like it's just TikTok. It's like a flex that I don't know what that is. Like I feel like wow. Oh like, no, I, I, even caught, yeah. I haven't caught wind of you, that yet. You haven't been down bad, my no, friend. <laughs> That's honestly impressive wow. because you did have COVID and were quarantined for two weeks, and you still didn't get that notification. No, I didn't. Oh my god, you gosh. must have like great focus and like a high attention span, and you could you you can just zone in on what it's you probably. Have the opposite it's probably because i keep scrolling back and forth between everything else and so <laughs> forth i'm you know but but i do i do i do really think that it's it can't what, what, they had like triller right and then it advanced into tiktok in what like 2018 i forgot about tr- that's another that's one it triller? was like it was like musically music, triller was way more musical yeah it's a musical tiktok that, yeah. I, I do think that they just ate up every single idea and they they studied what works on Instagram, what works on Twitter. Again, with Twitter, with posting, what time you mm. posted at, and they just ate it all up and completely capitalized on. And and then the for you page is the most mind blowing thing I've yeah, ever right, seen on right. any social media that you have every single person because you're watching it again and you see so many likes and you say anyone can go viral. 
like that. Like even like when you're posting a funny tweet on Twitter, you have kind of the idea that maybe if my follower who has 10,000 followers likes this or retweets this, then his followers will do it. Ttiktok just does it for you. They'll say, we'll show it into like yeah, right Nikki into these and people's I were faces. talking about that last night. Like Vine, like when Vine was huge, it was the repost button. That's what got everyone viral. Is like people just share, share, share. But it's like TikTok is like, like they decide. Like they are the arbitrary situation of like- It just happens. Yeah. That's it. I, when I was first watching, flipping through the For You page, and then the first time I saw like a 3 million like video. Likes, not even views. Not views, likes. Likes, interactions on it. I was like, what? I don't understand how this works, but they just have it down perfectly to an evil science. Again, yeah, like I'll yeah. say, it's crazy. And it's, it's the perfect yeah. way to get famous, make money, get yeah. interactions, get followers. It's it's genius. TikTok but it is, also yeah. might be the downfall yeah, of our TikTok society. TikTok is so <laughs> fascinating to me because it is such a mystery, right? Like even now that we've kind of like gone, you know, a, a, give or take two years of TikTok kind of being in the spotlight as this new social media that we're still like, how does it really work? You know, it, it, it just makes me wonder because I was not an early adopter by any means of TikTok. I do remember when it first came out, other people were kind of on it. It makes me want to draw the parallel to, you know, let's say Clubhouse now. You know, Kim, I don't know if you're on Clubhouse, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about that because that's kind of like the new thing that it reminds me of what TikTok was about two and a half years ago when it came out. And I thought that's kind of this weird social media platform kind of seems Isn't that niche. how they all go, though. Like they right they, they, they all genuinely do. Exactly. Exactly. But I was, I'm too young to understand the niche of Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You know, I mean, the, the niches yeah, of those are so far behind that. For sure. At least TikTok, I can kind of say, all right, in my adult life, I kind of saw the niche yeah. roll out of that. I thought it was that. just dudes dancing with their shirts off. That's what yeah. I thought. I didn't even realize it was social media. I legitimately, totally. yeah, I legitimately thought. That's what it was for a yeah. long time. I thought Honestly, it was just was like a video profession. editing platform. I thought it was an editing platform where you would take TikToks and then you'd, you'd create something on it and then post it on Instagram. I didn't even acknowledge it for what it was as its own platform. And so Clubhouse, I remember the first time I heard about Clubhouse, I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. You go on there and you talk to people on Clubhouse large people. But now I'm starting to think, all right, if I really want to be open-minded moving forward towards this, what did the early adopters of TikTok think and Instagram and Facebook and MySpace going back? If I were to be one of those early adopters and be as open-minded about Clubhouse as possible, what is the potential for it moving forward? Because there's a lot of potential. It's ultimately like what we're doing now. I mean, right now it's audio only, but if they add the video element, they add the external mics, you can run a legitimate podcast or a video show through it. It's endless possibilities. So I, w- I would love to hear what your thoughts are on that, you know, if any, and, and kind of see what you think that might go, for example. Yeah. By the way, I should acknowledge one thing. So my my neighbor in the neighboring apartment just started blasting uh, Latin music. I don't know if you can hear this. Or if- oh, no, no, we can't hear it. Yeah. Okay, good. Because he started like blasting like straight through the wall. This might be like a, a payback because it's midnight here and I'm talking loud. But <laughs> Oh, jeez. No, no. We're sorry for keeping you up. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all good. Um, I think... Uh, I think Clubhouse, I mean, Clubhouse is really interesting. Like I, so I did my first Clubhouse with a few other people like last week. And I mean, undoubtedly, like it's a highly engaged audience and people are building large audiences on there. I heard about, I heard a story about a guy who spent a lot of time on Clubhouse and sold like he launched a book and sold 40,000 books in the first day, basically all from clubhouse, like all from promoting on clubhouse. So like the crossover to other platforms is very real. 
I think a few thoughts. One, I feel like it's still kind of the early days for TikTok. Like I, I feel like in social media evolution, there's moments in time, there's windows when it's easy or much easier to scale and get big. And uh, like TikTok is... Is that the music? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm banging to tell me to be quiet. Um, hold on. Let me, let me move. No worries, no worries, no worries, no worries. No, no, you're good. So I, I think... Like TikTok, there's still a big window of, of growth opportunity. Clubhouse obviously is also like a really fast growing social media platform. Lots of opportunity there. I think the challenge, like it's slightly different audiences. So depending on what people are, what you're trying to do, one could be better than the other. The challenge with Clubhouse that I see is one person explained to me is like to get big on Clubhouse, you have to spend a ton of time on Clubhouse. Mm, like people yeah. who are getting big are spending like four, five, six, seven, like even more hours per day on Clubhouse. When you compare that to something like Full-time TikTok, job. yeah, TikTok, you post one video uh, and you're out. Like, you know, you might record something off TikTok, you post it and you're gone. So it's like, it's just a very different, it's more traditional social media where you're pushing out to the public and other people are spending time consuming. But if you're a creator, you don't have to spend huge amounts of time. Whereas Clubhouse is a big, big time investment. But I guess one other thought is I do think like, Clubhouse is kind of replacing podcasts to a certain degree right now. Like a lot oh, of people sure. are not listening to podcasts and doing Clubhouse instead. So if you have a pod, like if you're doing something in the audio space, like it's a really good kind of playground to be in. Even mm-hmm. let's call it let's call it a radio show podcast. Like Clubhouse is right in the same vein. So I feel like with what you guys are doing, it's right in your wheelhouse. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting platform. Um, I was going to say though, just uh, this is a kind of a loaded question, I guess, but uh, like in, in the easiest explanation possible, the sort of like the in between time between say like Malfi and your college years and to now um, kind of starting your journey with like TikTok and social media experimentation and that kind of stuff, the, the steps in the middle and we, I was just kind of wondering, like, what, 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 briefly, like, that it, it took you to get to the point of being able to have that, like, financial freedom to just move around and do what you want. I know Doobie was wondering if you ever experimented with, like, drop shipping or anything like that, or just, like, different things that you might have tried along the way. Any advice that you would have for someone trying to go down the same path? Yeah. So, my, like, the Malfi stuff ended for me in 2012, went back to college, spent three years at USC. And in those three years, like, I was really, like, watching a lot of YouTube videos and trying to learn from people who had been successful in, like, tech entrepreneurship. So I pivoted into startups and tech. The big reason just because, like, talent management, you're relying on someone else for your own success. And that sucked, especially when it didn't work out for me. Right. Um, and that feeling of powerlessness, I really didn't like. And, and then, I mean, one other quick side story is the most powerful person in music that I got to meet was this guy named Rio Karif, who used to be a, I think, senior vice president at Universal, and then he founded Vivo, which was like wow. the 
uh, you know, the music video platform yeah. that hosted all the major label artists on YouTube. Oh yeah, you you type you type any artist's name and Vivo next to it on YouTube. It's like all their videos come up. Yes. So I got to meet with this guy for an hour at the Vivo offices in New York, like randomly through a random connection. And he gave me some really good advice. This was summer of 2012. I sort of told him my story and said, Hey, what do you think I should do? Like, I really like music, but I'm figuring out, like I haven't been able to figure out how to make money and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And he said, if you want to do music, that's great. Like music is a great thing to a great place to be. Um, recorded music is incredibly hard to make money. So don't, he basically said like, don't do it. Um, it's just, it's really, really difficult. A lot of people are passionate, super hard to make money. If you want to be in music, do music tech or do like live events. And that's really where like the money is and careers are. And obviously there's plenty of exceptions to that rule, but I very much found like, I mean, I felt like we did pretty well and we made basically no money. (laughs) Um, so that world was tough. So that's kind of why I pivoted into startups and tech. Um, during college, like spent a lot of time learning. And then after college, uh, worked at DoorDash for a year, launching new markets and then running our special projects group. And then after not that... Delivering like, food? <laughs> what is not, not delivering food? Not delivering food? Actually, I, I did do a lot of deliveries. Like, I mean, anytime I'm launching a new market... And we don't have enough drivers. Like I'm hopping in a car and I'm driving. Oh, that's around. awesome. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it like, I mean, that's where I started my like financial independence journey and really my like digital entrepreneurship journey. And I messed around with, with drop shipping and e-commerce stuff with uh, a bunch of different service businesses. Like I had a U.S. exporting business and I had a bill negotiation business. Um, and I mean, I know people who like, I have a friend who he scaled up a, a drop shipping store that reached like, I don't know, $50,000 in profit a month or something. So like people are reaching really significant scale. I really liked like the content and information space as a like passive income space, just because like content information has a really long shelf life. Like when you think about music, movies, books, and we're still consuming books from like how to think and grow rich is, was written in the 1930s and still like a bestseller in like mindset and money. And, um, like information just has a really long shelf life, I think compared to products and like generally speaking, well, I played around more in like e-commerce arbitrage where whenever you started doing well in something like other people would jump in and compete. So it was a lot of like fast cash. And when things go well, it becomes competitive margins go down and you're like chasing the next thing. So a lot of the e-commerce stuff I was doing, I guess it was chasing like like money opportunities as opposed to building assets. And I think there's a lot of value in building assets, like things things that will like withstand the test of time and things that other people will want to buy and that like will not be easily disrupted. And I mean, you can see that that happens within e-commerce. Like if you look at Gymshark and you look at um, like some of these brands that have built really strong brands, but 
I think like like brands, like like things, like I really think about assets as being valuable. Um, I love content and information because, uh, like, when you think about courses, when you think about affiliate type businesses, like really high profit margins, generally really simple, not many employees or like no employees, and almost no cost to start anything. So, um, I really like that space. That's what's worked well for me, but there's there's lots of opportunities and there's a lot of people making a lot of money doing really random stuff on the internet. Uh, and I think it's a matter of just like diving in and learning and experimenting and figuring it out along the way. Wise words, wise words. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Cam. This, this really has been absolutely awesome going from music to learned a lot for sure to, to learning how we need to start making more money yeah, <laughs> yeah basically us, basically yeah. <laughs> it's like genuinely but uh, like we really really appreciate you coming on yeah thank you so much i appreciate you guys and for anyone listening uh freedom is everything.com is my main website and cam woodsome you can find me on on any social media platform feel free to reach out i'm around i'm available yeah, be sure to check out his TikTok. Digital, just like everybody else. So yeah, awesome. right. Digital before it was cool. Before COVID. Of course. Thank you, Cam. And Malfi forever. Malfi forever. Malfi forever li- too, li- Download Malfi Boston forever. Lights. It's still out on Dad Piff. Dad Piff is still alive. You can download it. <laughs> are you, st- are you still getting royalties from uh, from Boston Lights downloads? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, not not from downloads, but from like Spotify plays and like I don't know if people are still buying on iTunes, but it's still on iTunes. I have I have one last question: is is that Piff still hot or is it dead? Um, I mean, I think it's for like old like guy. I mean, I was just about to call us older guys, and I stopped. <laughs> when we are older, <laughs> but, old heads. but like there's you can still have the app, and you can download you know Dreams and Nightmares by Meek Mill. You can download no but people ceilings. aren't. It's download. not like a main place where people are releasing new stuff. I don't think no, so. no, no. It, it, okay. It's a place that you can get nostalgia stuff. But SoundCloud is still the, like SoundCloud is kind of similar to TikTok, where I know guys who post a uh, song on SoundCloud, and it has, and they wake up in the next morning it has twenty five thousand listeners and plays and that's crazy yeah well it's, it's that makes me happy one quick last story is the founder we, we of have plenty of time. time we're just nervous about your neighbors we have yeah, no, we have yeah, all the time yeah, in the definitely, world definitely the daptiff guy sucks Fuck that. <laughs> oh my god he is a scumbag i think he went to jail didn't he he went to jail right i i hope so i'm pretty sure he did yeah he definitely did so my one story with that piff is when we released our first mixtape i think um, it was like fifty dollars to upload a mixtape, and I accidentally, like, I accidentally bought it twice, and I like paid for it twice. And I was like, okay, no worries, like normal business. You know, if you pay for it twice, you just email them, say, hey, I, you know, I made an accidental payment, can you refund one? You'd think. And so I did that, and he was like, no. <laughs> uh, and then what? What happened? He. Oh, I disputed one of the payments on PayPal and he took <laughs> and he and he and he took down the mixtape. No way. He took down the whole mixtape over fifty dollars. And I was like, fuck, this guy's got me by the fucking balls. And so so I like, you know, I I submitted a new payment and I was like, Hey, can we put this in the past and move on? And then we forever had problems with that piff after that, where when we released the next mixtape, 
like the download link was broken for like six months and they wouldn't wow. fix it. And <laughs> oh my god, like, there was probably dude. like 10 people working in God knows where, some random place in America. It was probably 10 people and like eight guys were tech guys. And he, I'm sure he was like the bureaucrat. He's like, Yeah, don't, don't fix that link. <laughs> yeah, you're getting that support email. Don't fix it. Don't fix it. I mean, I think it was just the founder on the support emails. So That's like, what I mean. I, I, I'm pretty sure he went to jail. And like, I remember there when they they tried to like go like almost like public sort of, and their Better Business Bureau was an F immediately when they came out. It was <laughs> their rating was horrible. And then I think like 2015 or 16, they were shut down for like two years, and then they kind of came back. And it was yeah. like okay, only cleared samples, and then that didn't work. And then they were just like okay, screw it, and they just. Because th- that was the best part about it. You could download Anything. what you could download Kanye's full discography, and it'd be some random guy's name underneath it. And you could download like graduation, late registration, all those things. But it is good that we have a better system. But with Spotify and SoundCloud and things like that, but it does screw the artists. Do you guys make any money from that piff after you paid to get it on? No, no. I mean, because everything in there was free. Like that was the whole trend. Of- yeah, yeah. It's like ads least- that he probably went right into his back pocket. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, now, like, if you put something out on Spotify, I mean, I guess you get paid. What was the last time I checked? You get paid like like an, a tenth of a cent or something. I was gonna say it's like zero zero one yeah. for every something really low, like, like ten thousand streams or something crazy. Yeah, yeah but. But yeah, but but the trend towards like Spotify, I mean, is amazing. Like not having to download music at all and just being able to get instant access to basically everything that was ever created is incredible. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Cam, Cam, this was awesome. We really can't appreciate you enough. Like, thank you so much. This is informative in like five different sectors. Well, thank you guys for having me and and send me the playlist from that last radio. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I was jamming out. I need to. I'm gonna text this to you right now. Thanks again for listening to Hull House Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Hull House, H-U-L-L-H-A-U-S. New episodes dropping every week, so stay tuned wherever you're listening.